Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and being here today. I have a wonderful guest, Amina Elster. I've known Amina for a long time. Um, Amina is a consultant right now, and she's going to be in systems change. She's going to go into that a little bit later, and as well as she's going to be doing a nonprofit. She's going to be talking about that later as well. And she's done great work in the community. Um, she was 15 years in state prison. She came out, got her, her BA from UC Berkeley, one of the best schools in the country, um, although I'm wearing my USC gear. Um, but uh, anyway, Amina, thank you so much for being here. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Amina, can you tell me really quickly, um, can you tell me really quickly um, what consulting, I want to make sure that I have this correct, uh, what kind of consulting you do and then also your nonprofit. Yes. So I um, recently uh, founded a, a consulting firm, Proximate Strategies Consulting, and largely it's our bucket of work includes like systems change consulting. So that means partnering with systems or government agencies um, and, and, and consulting on how to bring in people with lived experience into their decision making and um, workforce, but also around professional development for formerly incarcerated professionals. So I create um, innovative e-learning courses that helps folks to really level up and, you know, be their best on the job. Um, so and coaching, providing that professional coaching, which is a need for formerly incarcerated professionals. Like I said, I mean, I've known you for a while now, and you always, uh, when you got it, when you got out of prison, you'll go into your story. But when you got out, you were so goal directed. Like you came out, and you were like, "This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to Berkeley, and I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this." And I want to go into a little bit about how you became so goal directed, and you are now as well. But can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who were you born and raised? And, you know, you can kind of give me a background on that. Yeah, for sure. So born and raised in the Bay Area, Oakland. I was born and raised in Oakland, um, middle school, high school, um, throughout over in the East Bay. And um, it was my living in Oakland that, you know, took me into prison, you know, living, uh, living out and living a fast life. Um, out there in East Oakland and learning um, the hard way as I as I as I grew up, ultimately landed me in prison on a 15 to life sentence. Um, and from there, you know, going to prison. Let, let me ask you this, Amina. Mm -hmm. If you can tell me what was your I, I want to go like a little deeper dive on what was your life like growing up and then how did you what kind of pulled you in what kind of stressors and stuff pulled you into getting involved with criminal activity how what was that process for you like oh yeah so i feel like honestly it's like typical kind of like your typical story right you're about folks i grew up in east oakland you know, so which is like in in poverty in in a, in a impoverished neighborhood where violence was prevalent um also growing up as a young black woman with low self-esteem um, and a need to belong. And that's ultimately what took me into criminal activity because I noticed when I was engaging in criminal activity, um, I would get um, even noticed by my, my, my parents. So it was like kind of like a validation. So that fed into the continued cycle of, you know, hanging pl people, places and things that did not have my best interest um, at, at hand. 
Um, and those relationships and those experiences um, really laid the path and the foundation for me to, you know, find myself like many of my peers and in, incarcerated. So when was the first time that you had, I guess, how old are you when you first had experience like committing crimes and then getting caught? What was your first experience like in the criminal justice system? Oh, the experience. My first experience was um, humiliating, um, just to say the least, um, to experience. And I think for people, I don't think like largely people that haven't experienced incarceration don't really understand the, the level of dehumanization that exists in prison, but just being in a place where I did not have any control, my body, my physical being is controlled by entities that are, you know, above me, but within the system, um, which also, you know, provided me a, a glimpse of a place that I did not want to be. You know, this is a place that I didn't want this for myself. Couldn't see myself, you know, living in institutions for the rest of my life or, you know, continuously um, repeating that cycle. So what was so what was the first crime? Did it like kind of did it like did it escalate or did what the first time you had contact or the first time you had contact with the criminal justice system was this? Did friends of yours get arrested? Did you get arrested? And then was it going to county jail or did you did you get caught up and went straight to state prison? Okay, so no, great question. My very first um, encounter with incarceration, I had to be like eighteen years old. So at a young age, I my criminal vices really revolved around like check check fraud. So a lot of uttering a forged instrument, and that was my first encounter with the carceral system. And it was in the county jail for uttering forged instrument. And this is me myself going into banks, which is something I had learned from my associations, um, and took and started embarking upon. Um, so yeah, my first encounter was in the county jail, Santa Rita County Jail, um, for uttering forged instrument. And then that, um, after, I wasn't just one time. I think I went to county jail maybe like three times um, and was given probation until ultimately my criminal behavior escalated and I ended up going to federal prison for embezzlement. Um, so then I go to federal prison. So my, as you can see, my, criminal um, activity kind of escalated from other enforced instrument to, you know, working in a bank and ultimately going to federal prison. But all the while, these associations and the people that I am around, everybody, which I feel like was an open door and allowed other folks into my world, which ultimately I be got married and it turned into a very abusive relationship and found myself in state prison for um, a 15 to life sentence. You know, I didn't, you know, I, for some reason it, so how long, okay, I'm going to ask you, I guess it's, it's a couple questions here. What was being booked at the Alameda County jail like for you? Did that scare you at all? Or you were like, you know what, I can deal with this. Or we had you already kind of been accustomed to this. Like this is, Hey, you know what? I'm not tripping on this. I'm going to continue doing what I would, uh, I'm doing. And then when you ended up going to the federal prison, how long were you in fed prison for? Um, I was sentenced to federal prison for a year and a day, a year and a day so that I could get 85%. So my sentence was actually like 10 months in a federal prison camp in Dublin. And my experience in the county jail, um, 
Yeah, no, that that definitely it, it, it affected me, which I spoke earlier about the dehuman the, the dehumanization. But I think like when you're involved in like maybe criminal behavior or other kind of activities, you have this flawed uh, mindset that you are untouchable or that okay, I won't find myself in this position again, you know, or I will be slicker this time, you know. Um, yeah. And so what was it? And when you talked about dehumanizing, I think some people probably don't, if, if you can create a mental picture, what that means, you know, for some of our listeners, they don't know what jails are like or what prisons are like. What do you mean by that? I mean, I can, I think I can guess in terms of, you know, they strip search you. They, what are the kind of things that you felt as though you were, it was dehumanizing for you? Yeah. So that's one of them. You know, having to be strip searched or not even having any autonomy over your body. So you strip search in a room with like 20 other people. So there's like no privacy. The fact that you are, you know, um, after you're incarcerated, you're really you're numbered. You're like you, you're no longer yourself. You're no I'm no longer Amina. You know, I'm largely a, a number in the last name. Um, the fact that, you know, your femininity is stripped away from you. You have outfits and clothes you can wear. There are certain things that you can't have, you know, that you would have if you weren't incarcerated. But it really kinds of, kind of prison and jails really strips away any kind of individuality from individuals. Um, and family, you know, strips and tears apart um, family. Um, so in, in that way, really strips away people's humanity and self-esteem and, you know, family. It's like prisons and jails strips away a, a, a lot of what, you know, folks in this country and in the world really value, um, which is individuality, um, humanization. And, um, and what, what was like federal prison like for you? How did you, I know there's, if you can explain a little bit, there, there's politics inside. What was that like for you navigating all that? And what was federal prison like for you? Um, federal prison was real similar. So it was camp and it was still a prison. You're very present. You know that it, it is a prison. Um, a lot of people was like, oh, yeah, federal prison is different from state prison, but you're still confined. You're still separated from your family. And at the time I had I gave birth to my son while I was incarcerated. So it was even harder to me to have to continue to be incarcerated and away from my son and not being there to, you know, take care and raise my son um, like I was supposed to. So the federal prison was, yeah, it was the hardest because I gave my, I had my child while I was incarcerated and was transferred to federal prison. So I missed um, the first four to five months of my son's life um, due to incarceration. At that point. Well, yeah, yeah that, that must have been really rough to have a child in custody. So, I mean, that's just, and so when you got a federal prison, did you go back to criminal behavior and then what was that like and what kind of criminal behavior did you start engaging in after you served the federal time? I didn't. I did not engage in criminal behavior after mm -hmm. my um, federal my federal case. I went home to be a mother and raise my raise my child. Mm -hmm. But at that time too, I was married, married to a very abusive man. Um and it was through that, it was through my violent and abusive relationship that I found myself incarcerated again. Can you give me a little idea 
I know you. I know that you went through a lot in that situation. And unfortunately, I see many women end up going to state prison, and they are they are engaged in relationships with people that are abusive. It's, it's, it seems to be a common trend. Um, and I know that you and I have spoken about that in the past, and I know that you agree with that. Um, how did you get pulled into this? And was it frustrating for you not to be able to say, listen, I, I got pulled into this, and why am I being sent to prison? Well, how did I get pulled into it? <laughs> I would say it was all about relationships, not, not wanting to be in my violent relationship anymore and not really having the tools or the knowledge on how to leave that abusive relationship. Um, I essentially put other folks that was in my life that cared about me in danger, um, which that is what led me. So I would, yeah, that's what led me to prison has having, not knowing how to get out of the situation, believing that, you know, I had the answers and I did not, but also ultimately having other folks in my life that loved and cared about me um, and wanting to help me. Um, yeah, put them, put put lives in danger. That's what drew me. That's what got me um, sent, to, to, sent to state prison and drew me into the, yeah, the logistics around why I, why I found myself incarcerated. At the time, did you feel as though you got, did you get proper, I'm just wondering, I'm just, just, you know, we have these open conversations all the time, you know, did you get proper, um, a good defense attorney to help you so you could give your kind of, you know, your part in it? And did that help? Because you ended up still getting, I mean, you were down quite a, quite a few years. I mean, did you, were you able to get mitigate that at all? Because you were in 15 years. Yeah, yeah, um, I was because um, I had been diagnosed with battered women's syndrome prior to this, my, my state offense of second degree murder. Um, and that was my mitigated. I took a plea bargain, which 15 to life sentence was my mitigated plea. I could have had life without the possibility of parole. Um, so they did take in my previous uh, my previous history of uh, abuse into the fold and hence my lesser sentence of 15 years to life so when you went to when you went to prison what was the difference between state prison and federal prison and what was that adjustment for you like and how old how old was your son when you went in yeah so i think that there's a different there's different dynamics. There's different caliber of um, people in federal prison, different caliber of people in state prison. Um, and a lot of folks in federal prison are there for white collar crimes. A lot of folks are in state prison due to mostly violent crimes. A lot of your lower level nonviolent crimes sometimes stay in the county jail. So I think that is like the, the, the main difference for me. And when I went to prison for my state, um, state case, my son was two. He was two years old. What was the dynamics inside the prisons? When you first went there, there's so many people that go in and they're like, you know what, I'll deal with this and I'm going to go ahead and be hardcore and you know what, I'm going to go ahead and 
make a statement in the prison. You know, I, I'm just about, you know, surviving in here at this point. What was your evolution as a person all those years? And what made you the person you are today? Yeah, I think going into prison, um, I had I, I had a I had a good I had a good attorney. And on the onset, he was like, Well, you know, you just go to prison and do your 15 years and go before the board and you get out. And it sounded real easy, like really straightforward. Go to prison, do 15 years, run a good program, you get out. So going to prison, I realized that was not the case. Because at the time, people just weren't getting out. And people there was a lot of hopelessness running around, but I just refused to accept that. God had this in my God had a plan for me to spend the rest of my life in prison. I didn't. So immediately it's really it was about what do I have to do to get out of here? And a lot of that was fueled on my passion to reunite with my son and my passion to um just not become, you know, a product of my environment or a product of the system. So wanting, asking folks, you know, about their experiences going to the parole board, uh, finding folks that was willing to share their parole transcripts with me, asking for support or feedback, but that also gave me knowledge around the process, engaging in groups, creating groups to fill voids that did not exist, that were critical for folks in, that critical for folks on the inside serving life sentences in order to obtain their freedom. Um, all the while, my North Star was reuniting with my son, who was two years old when I left. Um, so, and that kind of that really kept me anchored um, and on on task to my mission of liberation. I assume, and was your son visiting you in prison all those years, or not? Not one time. Not one time. Yeah. So my my family pretty much disowned me when I was in prison, and. Um, I thought I was doing the right thing by leaving my son in the care of my of my parents, because at least I, I believed at the time I would have access to him. I would know where he was. I would be able to talk to him. And that wasn't the case because, yeah, I was disowned and um, wasn't really allowed contact with him. Um, so for a, yeah. So for a long time, I yeah, I couldn't talk to him. I did not have an open line of communication, but I would still write every day and find creative ways on how to, you know, get message to him and let him know that he is loved and um, that I am fighting to reunite and just, you know, willing to be there and answer any questions like he may have. And that was something I, you know, did until I'm until I, until I was released. How quickly did you start going into? You said you, you started to engage in treatment programs inside. How quickly did you do that? Did you do that like like the first year or there, or did it take you a while, a couple of years, to kind of process? You know what? I can, I'm I want to get out of here. Or did you go in saying, "I'm gonna get out of here. I'm gonna do what I needed to do to, do to change myself to get out of here." Yeah, it was it was immediately. It was immediately. Um, yeah, because that that was the goal. I just yeah, I was not finna. I cannot imagine myself sitting there. Um, and seeing how folks do their time, I'm an observer. So just watching and listening and seeing, you know, how folks do their time, um, who's getting out, you know, what have they did to get out that they can model, you know, that something that I want to pick up and um, higher education, access to higher education. Those are my those are my goals. So what kind of classes did you take inside the prisons? Well, I took like Vogue. Voc, um, fiber optics, electrical, vocational, carpentry, 
uh, Office Services, um, AA. I have two AAs, one associate in science, one associate in liberal arts and humanities, um, paralegal, family law, civil litigation trainings, um, and then a, a host of like self-help programs, you know, from, you know, um, impact to um, anger management to creating DV programs that didn't exist inside of this women's prison. Um, but a large portion are, are, have been survivors of domestic violence. So really um, creating and facilitating those courses to peers, um, self-esteem courses. I mean, a whole list of different kind of self-help and education is really what I immerse myself in. When you, was there any point at all when you were in, when you were in prison that you felt as though, did you ever get, did you ever feel like, you know what, am I ever going to get out of here? Did you ever, did it ever feel hopeless for you? And how did you process that? Like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to fight through this. And how do you get through those difficult times, the resiliency of, of just being able to get through those every days? Yeah. So honestly, no, I had it. I knew. I, I just knew God didn't have that plan for me. And I held firm in that. Um, but I think it was actually, you know, my college courses that helped me get through each day. Just being able to, you know, by reading the text, I was able to like travel the world and see things that I hadn't seen, like growing up in East Oakland, where I'd only thought my neighborhood was all that existed or, you know, Oakland. So being able to see, hey, there is more out there, you know, in the world, more to experience. Um, but also from my professors um, being like sources of inspiration and empowerment, you know, like letting us know, hey, y'all could be on at, at Berkeley on a campus. There are formerly incarcerated people on campus at Berkeley, you know, really helped also fuel, fuel desire to um, do what needed to be done to get out of prison. So I can't say that there was ever a time like I was just down, like hopeless, like feeling like I was not. I just knew that God did not have um, prison or incarceration in store for me for the rest of my life. I mean, uh, um, I guess one of the one of the, one of the questions I'm going to ask you is: when you went to the parole board, did you have everything ready, and did you like, hey, you know, I, were you excited about going and say, I got this, and? How many times did you end up? Did you get your, did you get a grant the first time you went to the board to to talk about the things that you've done? Yeah, I went one time. I was granted that one time. I was ready and prepared because my peers allowing me to like look read their transcripts and allow me to su support them. You know, also helped me to internalize and um, really understand you know the role that I played and you know how how things would play out different if I was given another opportunity. Um, so all of that prepared me to go and sit before the parole board in my truth. Um, and I was granted. What were the feelings like when you found that you got the grant? How did you feel? Unreal. Like finally, I, it was unreal. Yeah, unreal. Like, is it a dream? You know, you wait all, so many years. Like this is, yeah, so many years of dreaming and we're seeing other folks, you know, rolling up or, or and leaving and waiting for that opportunity and then just yeah to, to actually have it it was unreal and um yeah 
So what was your reaction? Were you like, did you cry? Did you say, oh, or did you jump for joy? Or, did, or like you said, did it feel like it just did, like, is this going to really happen or not? Did you have to pinch yourself? No, you still have to wait, right? You have to wait for the governor because even though the board is like, yeah, we grant, it's not over. The governor still has a say. So it's kind of like you're still on pins and needles. It's kind of, yeah, unreal, you know, not wanting to feel anything because nothing is certain until you actually off of um, the property. So the day that you got out, uh, what was that like for you? And who picked you up? Did you come out by yourself? I mean, what, what happened? Was, did you get to see your son when you first came out? What was that like for you? Yeah, no, I didn't get to see him yet because he was at college in Morehouse in Atlanta. Um, but uh, my a mentor of mine came to pick me up. And um, yeah, that ride from the Central Valley to the Bay Area was like, yeah, it was like a breath of fresh air. Then it was real. Yeah. Then it became real, you know, and it was, yes, yeah, it's surreal. <laughs> it was so real. So when you got out, how long did it take for you to contact your son or get a hold of him? And what was that reunification like for you? Um, it took, it took, um, it took a minute. It took a minute. Um, <laughs> Because there's others, it was still some complicating issues with, with my mother, right? Because yeah, me, her, she, and I, we don't really see eye to eye. Um, so trying to navigate complex relationships took a minute, but um, eventually I was able to connect with my son. We moved back to California, and um, since then we try to see each other every weekend, whether it's dinner or just catching up and finding out what's going on and how to support. So, you know. I'm blessed with the opportunity to be able to establish a relationship, a solid relationship with my son today, which is all I wanted for, for years. So being able to realize it is truly a blessing. So your son ended up going to Morehouse and then he graduated from Morehouse. And so he's, so you have a, a very strong relationship today, I assume. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what was what was the transition for you when you got out? Was it a difficult transition for you? Um, did you go directly to Berkeley? Were you accepted to Berkeley when you got out? Was that already set up before you got out? Or did you go to school and then eventually get into Berkeley? Like a community college or how did that work? Yeah, so I was released in um, August. In August and um, a friend of mine was already at Berkeley. So I was able to go to campus and get some support with my um, personal statement and applications for the following spring. I started applying. Um, my transition upon reentry, I went to I plural to San Francisco, um, San Francisco Wealth of Resources. So it was smooth. The only thing I would say is that oftentimes a lot of folks are put into these transitional housing programs that are really substance abuse centered. So it was kind of hard having to go to these classes that I had been going through, going to for, for years and not being able to really get a job or, you know, be on campus on a college campus like I would in preparation for school. But I overcame that and, um, that spring, I was um, accepted into Berkeley. So that's great. That's great. That's mm -hmm. I think part of the issue was that when you got out, it was there was a sea change in terms of laws and so forth. 
And it was difficult to have programs in place that were not substance abuse focused because they weren't ready for this number of, of, of folks to get out. And so I think it's much better now, but I, I really admire the people that have to, that have to do that because you probably could have taught a lot of those classes probably. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you finished graduating, uh, you graduated from Berkeley and then you started this consulting business and uh, started the nonprofit first. Yeah. Just, yeah. The nonprofit. And, 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 okay. So you did both of them. So can you explain what was that and why you started this nonprofit? And then and you can talk about the consulting business as well. Yeah. So at the height of COVID in early 2020, we were getting a lot of like calls and emails from folks on the inside, just explaining how conditions were inside with COVID pandemic and all of the support folks needed being locked in, no access to educational programs, no access to mental health services. Um, and me and several other formerly incarcerated women, we just conceptualized Unapologetically Hers, healing experiences through research solutions, which are a nonprofit to support folks on the inside. So we're started as direct services. We were raising money to be able to provide mutual aid for essential items for folks, eventually um, incorporating a nonprofit to um, support folks around participatory action research. And that is really community-based research. Um, so we facilitate trainings for folks on the inside on how to do community research around topics that really um, resonate or are deeply important to them. We also provide um, peer parole coaching to folks on the inside to um, you know help them get a better understanding around you know causative factors, um, the impact that they've had on the community and the lives around them. Um, so yeah, that's largely what unapologetically hers does um, in support of people in California women's prisons. And then what about your consulting business? So you're you're kind of you're managing both things right now. And and I love what you're talking about. I love your. Can you tell me more about what you do for your consulting business? Yeah, so our, my consulting is Proximate Strategies Consulting, um, and it's a, also we work in collaboration with other formerly incarcerated consultants as well around systems change efforts. So we work with. Um, you know, government agencies and organizations around like facilitation and training and community engagement um, work, um, trying to uh, with the with the emphasis on incorporating people with lived experience into the fold and into decision making. But we also provide um, trainings, so professional development trainings for formerly incarcerated professionals, and these are online, innovative e-learning e trainings. Um, and coaching to complement it um, because it's important for folks to come out and have access to quality jobs, not just any jobs. We want folks to not just survive, but thrive. So being equipped with the skills that a lot of organizations and companies just don't have the capacity to, um, we come in to fill that void. Well, let me ask you this. What advice would you give to folks that are struggling with drug addiction or folks that are in situations where they're getting involved in a criminal activity and they want to get out of it, but they don't know how. So I think that, I think, I think it's important for folks to know where the resources are 
right? That's one of the main issues when folks want change but don't know how to get it, not knowing where the resources are. So I don't know. I mean, if folks have access to different types of organizations that specialize in substance abuse treatment or utilizing a network, their network of folks to, you know, refer different kind of organizations where the substance abuse or criminal activity, I think it's reaching out and not being afraid to ask for help. I think that's where a lot of folks get caught up to. So not knowing where to go and being afraid to ask for help um, and knowing that it's okay to ask for help. Um, but just, and you can do that as easy as getting online, go online and look up programs or places that supports around, have supports around there. They're numerous and they're available, but it's just knowing where to go for information and being able to ask for help. So I get to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, your favorite move, your favorite, oh, this is rapid fire here, so be ready. Uh, favorite music? R&B. Uh, what kind of art, what kind of R&B? Uh, I like, I like, I like Mary J. I like the Isley Brothers. I like some old school R&B. Your dream trip? Oh man, just say Bali to Bali. Um, favorite movie, favorite movie or movie. Oh, Sleeping with the Enemy. Oh, that's a good. You know, I haven't seen that for so long. My goodness. Um, and then, um, what do you want to be remembered for? Just for you know, being a trailblazer, a trailblazer. You know, clearing the path for other folks that other formerly incarcerated women, transgender, non-conforming folks behind me to be able to realize their full potential, full potential. Um, so yeah, being a role model. Okay. Um, so, so if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you, Miss Elston? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me would be to email me at info at unapologeticallyhers.org. And thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate you being here today. Um, you're an inspiration to uh, tons of folks, men and women. And uh, yeah, thank you very, very much for being here. I mean, I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and until next time, keep learning, everybody. See you then. All right.